0: Coming up next, an interview with Christopher James, professor of missiology on the hopeful signs of church renewal and church planting in Madison and beyond. After the music.
1: Welcome to the Upwards podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through conversations with thinkers, scholars, and leaders, we explore the life of the mind and the questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church.
0: Hello, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dan, your host. And just starting off here, wanted to acknowledge that here at Upper House and at UW-Madison, we're right in the middle of the semester, and we're right in the middle of a bunch of good programs at Upper House, and uh, you should check them out. Head to upperhouse.org slash events to see what's coming up, and uh, coming up for the rest of the semester and even into the summer. So getting to this episode today... Uh, I want to get autobiographical for a second. When I joined Upper House back in the summer of 19, the first speaker that I was able to host and to really learn the ropes of how to host was with the guest on our podcast today, Reverend Dr. Christopher James. And I actually hosted a few events with Chris in those early months in the fall of 2019. Back then, Chris had just finished a major church survey of Dane County the county that Madison is located in. And that survey asked a bunch of details about uh, more than 200 churches in the area. And he was sharing those results for the first time at Upper House. And that was a really great event, brought together a wide range of church leaders from all the major Christian communities in Madison. Um, And, and there was a lot of anticipation about the very interesting data that Chris had gathered well, since then, Chris hasn't let up. He's still working in Dane County and focusing on equipping church plants to survive and older churches to renew their mission. And Chris has also been a key driver of the Awakened Dane grant from the Lilly Endowment that we're a partner on here at Upper House. In short, Chris is an amazing member of the Madison Christian community, even as he lives and works 90 miles away in Dubuque, Iowa. So you're in for a treat as this conversation involves Chris in talking to John Terrell, our executive director on Chris's life and his work with churches and as a professor at, at university of Dubuque theological seminary right now, Chris is an associate professor of evangelism and missional Christianity at Dubuque. And there he also leads the master of mission and discipleship degree. And he holds a PhD in practical theology from Boston university school of theology an MDiv from Fuller Theological Seminary, and a BA from Wheaton College. And finally, one last note, uh, we've had a few guests now in a row who have been part of, in some way, the Awakened Dane grant. And we're still recruiting for the next cohorts of that grant, particularly church leaders in the Madison-Dane County area. So if you're a church leader or you're part of a congregation and think your church leaders should be part of, Awaken Dane. You can check out the Awaken Dane website. There's a link in the show notes. And you can, uh, check it, you can reach out through email or phone. That information is also in the show notes. So let's get to the conversation. Here's an upwards conversation with Reverend Dr. Christopher James.
1: All right. Well, Chris, it's so good to see you. Thank you for being here
2: today. It's my pleasure. I'm looking forward to the conversation. I am as well.
1: And I know you're fighting a little bit of a cold, so I appreciate you... Um, it's true. Yeah, yeah, being here, it's that... So if I sound a
2: little nasal, this is not my normal voice.
1: It is that time of year um, that we're fighting colds, and I'm glad you don't have COVID. I'm excited to have this conversation. I've known you for for quite some time, um, but I don't know a lot about your background. Um, I know where you grew up, but I don't know much more than that. Let's go way back. Um I would love to, to know more about your spiritual context growing up. What was it like to to be in your home, your family, your neighborhood?
2: Yeah, well, I grew up in the suburbs of Seattle, Bothell and Woodinville, and my parents were faithful church-going folks. Uh, my father would often sort of get up before us, and you'd find the Bible left on the, the kitchen table. Uh, so that a church, going to church was a regular part of life. I had an uncle who was a Assembly of God pastor. Uh, we were we were in largely four square churches and some other sort of holiness, charismatic, uh, evangelical churches were where we grew up. There had my my mother's side uh, you know, was sort of the the faith history and heritage had come from that side. Uh, my my dad had come to faith uh, in college. But on my mother's side my grandfather's dad had had this sort of conversion experience as a farmer in North Dakota, revival preacher had come through town and he had been an agnostic or whatever and had gone to this meeting to, you know, sort of with a, a ready to make an objection <laughs> to what was happening. And, and as the family lore goes, you know, he's ready to stand up and sort of say something in this revival meeting um, and finds himself sort of frozen to his seat. And sort of this uh, miraculous experience tips off sort of a, a legacy of faith on on that side of my family. So, uh, yeah, really faith filled home. Uh, went to private Christian schools as, as a result of that, and very formative for me. So, yeah, that's that's sort of the the heritage I, in, I inherited, and uh, I mean, really really grateful for it. I should say we you know we were in the Seattle area, uh, which I think colored sort of the experience of being a Christian in part because I was conscious, although I don't know it was a conversation, I was conscious that most folks in in the area were not religious like we were, we're not Christian like we were, uh, so much so that, you know, my best friend was a kid uh, from a Catholic household, and so I'm told, you know, I I worried about the salvation of of his father because he drank Rainier beer, you know. So there's a there's a touch of fundamentalism in sort of our um, the streams that we were swimming in. And uh, but there was a lot of vibrancy, I would say, in the, in the faith life. It was not perfunctory. It was not nominal. It was uh, part of our our daily life. You know, the the lullabies my mom would sing me were praise choruses. So
1: yeah, that's 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 fascinating. I, we're going to talk uh, as we progress in our conversation about the role of place, and I would love to hear, I know our listeners would be interested to hear a bit more about your neighborhood, your sense of connection to your community growing up.
2: Yeah, so we lived on a cul-de-sac that was sort of set apart with there's maybe 25 homes that were sort of connected there. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that uh, I had a real... Deep sense of place at, at that point. I mean, there was a clear sense that we could run around with the friends uh, and the neighborhood friends. Uh, I, in part, I suppose, because I was going to private Christian schools. Uh, you know, starting at middle school, we were commuting sort of out of the neighborhood uh, just to middle school, and then also to high school. Place is very important to me, and and I think is a really important. There's sort of been this rediscovery of the importance of place, in part because of how uh, displacing technologies have have sort of made us recognize uh, the, the absence there. But I wouldn't say at that point, I really, uh, I just sort of had a good cul-de-sac neighborhood. You know, some of the fond memories, this was a neighborhood where every 4th of July, the, the six or 10 houses on my cul-de-sac would all pull out their fireworks and set them off in the middle of the cul-de-sac. So there was a sense of of community and belonging in that neighborhood, it, it was not as in, as isn't the case in some suburbs. Just come drive in, drive out. Uh, there was a sense of belonging there.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll continue to explore that. I know that it influences the way you think about things today, and um, um, and I think for me, same way, it, 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 this idea of place um, and connectedness to geography has something that's evolved over time for me. Um, and looking back, I can see how it developed over time uh, and kind of trace those lines. Well, we'll pick back up on that. I'd, I'd love to hear a bit about the experiences, educational, prof- professional, otherwise, that led you to your current vocation as a professor and a scholar. Walk us through some of the key moments that that led to you um, pursuing the the path that you have chosen for, for your work.
2: Great. Well, I went to Wheaton College, and uh, started as a physics major w- with the a- idea of doing architectural engineering in a 3-2 program with mm-hmm. Illinois Institute of Technology because I liked Legos, and I was good at math, and I liked drawing. I was like, okay, I guess those things yeah, yeah. fit together. A,
1: th- a 3-2 would mean you could get your master's. Yeah, yeah I okay. think I would yeah. get the
2: master's in architectural engineering, but I get the major in physics, something like that. But my sophomore year, I participated in a ministry at Wheaton College called Youth Hostel Ministry, which was not about hostile youth. It was about traveling youth hostels in, in Europe, uh, which it was an evangelistic kind of ministry where, you know, we traveled around in groups of four and took the opportunity in that kind of environment to strike up conversations about faith, uh, which is a pretty ripe environment. People who are often traveling are interested in talking to the people they don't know about interesting things. So... I came away from that experience, on the one hand, really energized, um, having been through that experience and experiencing uh, God move in the midst of that, and also at the same time a bit irritated by some of the lack of clarity on my team about how we were supposed to go about doing this. So when I arrived back... I sent an email off to the director of not just Youth hostel Ministry, but all the ministries on campus and said, basically, what was your philosophy of ministry here? Uh, Because it wasn't clear. (laughs) And wisely, Tim (laughs) Sisk—
1: Glad to hear from you, I'm sure.
2: Yeah, well, wisely, this this director, his name was Tim Sisk, emailed me back and said, you're right. Would you help us think through our philosophy of ministry for this? So I got roped into sort of the leadership of that ministry and really was very energized. And that was my very first role as an educator, actually. I mean, I— was sort of designing the curriculum that was training people to go on on that um, youth hostel ministry the following year, began to know some of the professors in the ministry department, and during that year, uh, you know, by my junior year, decided to change majors uh, to Christian education and ministry. So that set me on a a different trajectory there. I think another important point along the way, you know, this sort of set me toward pastoral ministry, and uh, I did after uh, college, go work as an intern at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, working with questions like, pastor, is that really the kind of call that's on my life? Um, I mean, I didn't imagine myself being uh, Earl Palmer, who was the pastor at the time of University of Presbyterian Church. Like, that his kind of role didn't seem like quite the same kind of calling that I had on my life. Uh, but anyway, so I started following this path toward ministry, went to Fuller Seminary, and then uh, back into the church, uh, Menlo Park Presbyterian Church, where I, I was working with the Adult Discipleship Department again, and I was teaching there. I was creating classes, uh, organizing the small groups, and getting some feedback that teaching was a, was a gift area. Uh, so that, that season there uh, at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church was really where I started not only to say, as I had for a long time, I like school. School's fun. I love learning. I'm good at this. But uh, I think there's a, a gifting area here that I would enjoy uh, exploring. So after a couple of years there, I uh, went off to do doctoral work, not just because I wanted to teach, but also through that series of experiences was really um, driven. Uh, I mean, I, I, can, I can just briefly note, working in large churches brings you close enough to be a little bit disillusioned by sort of um, some of the things that can be characteristic of megachurches, high production, et cetera. And so I, I was curious, and really, to this day, continue to be uh, compelled by questions about what does it look like to embody Christian faith in secular uh, U.S. in this moment, in organic, beautiful, countercultural kinds of ways. Um, and so that was the kind of question, of what, uh, spiritual formation was a really big part of the culture there at the Church, and uh, participated in the Renovare Institute, uh, Dallas Willard was, was our teacher, and so... That whole uh, you know, mix of reflections drove me uh, into my doctoral work, which was eventually then looking at new expressions of church, church planting uh, in Seattle, a secular post-Christian kind of place.
1: Yeah, that's great. And I, I learned some things here. My, my wife, Vanya, was part of the IFES um, movement in Europe and came to um, University Presbyterian Church for a one-year yeah. internship. Yeah. Under, it was during Earl Palmer's the yeah. latter part of his time yeah. there, yeah. so you may have even overlapped. Um, Gosh, that could I don't be know. The, true. I don't I know it the exact would have been, years.
2: You know, like two thousand and two to five. I think is when I was there.
1: Probably, she, yeah. She she was probably there two thousand, right after you. Amazing. Two somewhere yeah. in that two thousand five well, to know, that was a
2: that was a um, program and a church that produced and trained and equipped a lot of people. Uh, I mean, their internship program was really strong. I think there were nine interns when I was there. Um, My wife, had uh, Lindsay, was an intern with the college ministry. I was interning with the high school ministry, and it was great formative uh, skills, sort of developing ministry skills. But also then I'll just uh, shout out to the pastor of discipleship at the time, Dave Rohr, um, really pastored the interns and and discipled us. uh, And as in retrospect I can see, really introduced us to practical theology. I mean, how to how to think about the ministry situations we were finding ourselves in in a prayerful, biblical, theological way, uh, as we brought case studies from our sort of um, internship situations for group discussion. And so, yeah, that really... Gave me an appetite for and an introduction to what I do now as a practical theologian.
1: Yeah, it, the the legacy of that church and a lot of the churches you've been involved with have, is is so significant. And you really, I'm sure our listeners know that. And it's and, and you really know about it if you're on the west coast. Um, but but the impact um, transcends um, geography. It's really amazing when you think about the impact those churches have had. Well, let's um, let's talk a little bit about your time at University of Dubuque. Theological Seminary. Um, I first met you when you brought a group of students um, in your Gospel and Context course to Madison. I think it was August of 2017. And I thought at the time that taking your class into the field was, was, was to me, a really exciting expression of your work as a professor of evangelism and mission, missional Christianity. Tell me about your teaching and research in- interests. We've you've started to get into this, um, even the origins of that course, how you approach your students, um, what you what you hope um, their outlook is as a result of spending time with you um, through your through your
2: courses. When I came to the University of Dubuque Theological Seminary, they were already teaching a course sort of like this, uh, very much like this, and the, the course would travel. To three would be split in three groups and travel to three different places: uh, Chicago, a Native American a reservation, and rural Iowa. Um, but when I when I you know some of my colleagues uh, retired and moved on, and I took over this course, I wanted each of the stu- every group of students to see multiple contexts rather than to have uh, you know a rich but p- pretty particular kind of contextual uh, experience. And Madison was close enough, so was, you're not losing a day with travel. It's about an hour and a half from Dubuque. Um, and it's, it's got a nice sort of urban life, of course, but also rural communities are not far away. So I'm, I'm a big believer in the power of uh, experiences to actually do formative work when you take them into the context of reflection. So I was delighted to inherit this course, and I'm honestly convinced that many of the experiences that students have In that course, uh, you know, I should say what we do is every group of students has two days in a rural community and two days in an urban neighborhood talking not only with pastors, but also with civic leaders, reporters, police officers, whomever um, can help interpret the life of that place for us and walking around and sort of sharing our observations as a way to equip them and really um, apprentice them in the kinds of things they ought to do wherever they're going to um, find themselves in ministry. Uh, this is one of the things that's, that's true of UDTS. Our students, uh, high, high percentages, more, uh, much higher than many seminaries, are going into serving the church um, in direct pastoral roles or other ways. So this is a course in our curriculum all of our Master of Divinity students take that sort of rec- introduces them to the importance of being a minister of the gospel in a place, not just a pastor to a congregation. And that involves knowing the features of your place, the questions, the hopes and fears of the people, not just in the congregation, but in the wider community. And this course is just really fun, because every time I teach it, and I teach it uh, typically with a colleague or two, uh, and they take separate itineraries with a similar... You know, we don't know what we're going to find out. We know, uh, and this is, this is good missiology, we know God's there. We know God's people are there trying to to do their best, and so we kind of make it a little uh, scavenger hunt. Uh, what's God up to here? How are God's people trying to be faithful to the particularities of their place, and what can we learn um, that that can maybe translate to our current places or other places that we expect to be in the future about knowing your place and um, embodying the gospel in a way that fits that context?
1: Yeah, so well said. Would it be um, fair to say that the learning objectives
2: of that course? are reflective of your broader research interests. That's true, yeah. the, the For me, I'd say probably the biggest level of, of question that drive my teaching and my research interests relate to the particular historical, cultural, social moment um, that U.S. Christians are in right now, and the, the ways uh, in which we need to discern what God is doing. So... There's there's plenty of sociologists who will interpret things, and there's plenty of ministry practitioners who will try to give you techniques to sort of grow or be effective or something. My way of approaching this is to ask, oh, take it for granted, God's at work in the midst of this moment, this historical moment, and especially particular places is, is a good way to focus our attention to trying to know what God's up to. And then our ministry, our habits, our lives ought to be shaped in a way that our Congruent with cooperating with what God is is doing in the midst of our place and of our history and our moment. So, my yeah, my writing really does try to help provide good uh, guidance for Christians and church leaders, especially through what I what has been and what I expect will continue to be a a disruptive kind of season. Uh, You know, decline is one way to describe it, but I think there's a lot more. There's a lot of churn. There's a lot of foment. There's a lot of new things happening. Um, And in fact, I. I said this uh, in a conference presentation a while ago. I think uh, the sort of crisis we're in right now is one of the most hopeful things that's happened to the church in a generation. It's it's uh, bringing us to our knees in a fresh way to sort of ask again uh, what it means to be God's people and how we ought to shape our life in response to the gospel for our time and our place. So I'm, it's quite an exciting time, although people who are in the roles of sort of— um, maintaining declining denominations it's hard to see that but uh as i'm training pastors and writing for for readers hope is a big part of my project
1: who uh, i'm i'm curious to explore this a little bit because it's there have been hard moments um in uh american history and hard moments in the life of the church mm-hmm. so we are we are at a unusual stage in some ways but in other ways um the Church um, has faced moments of crisis right. many, many times, right? right. I, I'm curious, um, who um, in the life of the Church over the decades or the centuries has been influential in helping you think about the role of the Church?
2: Gosh, that's, that's a great question. I'd say probably the most important influence for me is Leslie Newbigin, uh, who famously was an English missionary to India, who then came back. came back to the UK and sort of recognized that the West was as much a mission field as any foreign field. And that sort of basic insight, uh, you know, as as he put it, the the Western culture may be a a much more difficult mission or mission field than um, these places that have uh, presumably never heard the gospel or something like that. So that's a big, a big influence for me. Uh, more recently, and someone who really carries uh, in, in an important way the legacy of Leslie Newbegin, Alan Roxburgh, who's uh, now a friend, uh, he has made that same emphasis I just mentioned to go, which is recognizing our moment as actually a moment in which, which is pregnant with the work of God, rather than just sort of God will help us survive, which is not a, a faith filled or hopeful, it's not a virtuous uh, sort of Christian attitude. So, yeah, th- that sense and Newbegin is so good on this. It's it's done by many others now, but telling the story of history, the Bible as as actually a history of the world. This is what Newbegin said: the Bible is a history of the world, which, for an odd reason, is sort of incomprehensible to us. Tells the history of the world through the history of a people, a particular people uh, of no particular significance in their own selves, but because. They are the people with and whom through uh, God intends to work out the renewal of all things. And so that sense that our moment is held by the God who holds history, um, that we have an opportunity, as God's people have all throughout, to um, be partners with what God's doing in the world, that's that's really a hopeful way of approaching what can feel like a pretty disorienting, disruptive, uh, discouraging kind of moment if you're just— following statistics, for example.
1: Exactly, exactly. I think that perspective is so helpful to fill us with hope and to, and to be open to what God's doing. I think um, if, it's, if you're only focused on diminishing numbers and interest and the schisms that seem to be so prevalent, it's hard to um, be receptive to the, the moving of God's Spirit in the world.
2: That's right, that's right.
1: I want to dial back a little bit and um, talk about your research in Seattle because I think that really has influenced your work here. Um, you published your research in a book um, with Oxford University Press uh, 2017. The um, title of your book is Church Planning in Post-Christian Soil. And I found this fascinating, having lived in Seattle. I even knew lots of the little churches that you highlight. Talk about your book. What was the, what was the, the, the goal of your research and what
2: did you discover? Well, as I said, having grown up there, I knew that although sort of the popular imagination is Seattle's a secular place, I knew the church was alive there. I knew the church was actually vital. Um, And I also came at the research with a sense that Seattle represents many um, trends. It's sort of exemplary of many trends that are true of the U.S. as a whole. Urbanization, uh, move toward more progressive social values, post-Christian features, you know, the nuns and all this. Um, and also technological culture. So as sort of a um, proxy for some of these big trends, I, I felt that Seattle would make a good case study. And then uh, part in part because of my theological convictions about, or I suppose ecclesiological convictions about what the church is, I drew a geographical boundary, um, I, I, you know, the city of Seattle, rather than many studies which are um, trying to help church planting or faithful Christian witness would be focused on all the growing churches or all the churches in my tribe um, or, you know, the most replicating or something like that. I said, uh, God's at work in Seattle. I want to study all the new churches that have taken place, that have uh, come on the scene, or I would say that God has planted in, in the last, uh, it was 2001 to 2014 was a research window. And that meant including, uh, any church that affirmed a baptismal Trinitarian creed. And uh, so that's like the whole ecumenical picture as, as far as uh, at least the World Council of Churches would basically draw those lines. And in that, what I found in, in the research was, yeah, it was exactly that. that the church, although this is a place where um, people might describe it as super secular, hostile to faith or whatever, there had been 105 new churches started and still going in that period, uh, which is a pretty good uh, churn, um, and that those those churches mostly fell into one of four categories or overlapping categories. And so this is where I started thinking about that question, what does it look like to embody the, the Christian faith in places like Seattle that look kind of like the future? Um, and I knew from the beginning there's not just one way to do it. Um, and in fact, there can't be just one way to do it because no single church or even tradition can adequately embody the whole gospel. Um, So I started looking for what are the primary types and groups? And that's a a big part of the book is sort of unpacking what I think I call four practical ecclesiological models uh, of, of church plants in Seattle, which I expect, and uh, thus far I haven't been disappointed uh, will continue to be important expressions or, 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 forms of church uh, in the coming, you know, decades, as as those trends in Seattle continue to disseminate elsewhere,
1: so you don't recommend one form over the other, because um, but you sort
2: of do. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I certainly have a favored one, and that's be, but it's not one that's exclusive of the others. Right. There are there are three. I mean, I'll just very briefly say that the three that are sort of very similar to commonly understood categories are the Great Commission team, which is like your evangelical mission-focused church, the New Community, which is sort of the mainline emerging church progressive model, Uh, and the Household of the Spirit, which is the charismatic, Pentecostal, sometimes um, ethnic or immigrant community model. Those are the three that sort of fit the categories that that more or less uh, exist in sociology of religion, study of congregations already. But the fourth one, which is the one that I favor— isn't defined by sort of the by tradition or by denomination or by theology it's defined by a, a sort of primary identity with the hyperlocal you might say not just the local not the city of seattle but the neighborhood and that that orientation toward place as you were you were talking about earlier i would say disciplines the other three traditions in really helpful healthy ways that put those kinds of church plants in, in any type into the kind of position that recognizes, for example, that God is the primary missionary in this place. This is one of the insights of Leslie Newbigin in missional theology, which church plants and churches on the whole have a tendency to sort of see themselves as doing things for God, which we do, you know, we respond to God, but missional theology, uh, you know, and my theological emphasis really is the work of Christians is to do things with God. Um, which calls for that discernment work in advance
1: is a uh, neighborhood incarnational model. <laughs> That's the fourth one. Possible yeah. um, is it possible in in an exurban megachurch setting um, where you you know and, and I'm describing it's not so much true here in Madison but but in many big cities you know you sort of drive out of the core of the city mm-hmm. to. Uh, uh, many churches that are located, you know, um, in the suburbs or exurbs, I think is, you know, how they describe them. Big parking lots, um, not really a neighbor. I mean, I guess you can't really escape a neighborhood, but, but not a neighborhood in the traditional sense right.
2: that surrounds the the church building. Um, it seems to me that would be challenging. Yeah. Well, certainly that book is written with a an urban environment in mind. I mean, in Seattle is very growing, and and the city limits of Seattle are a very kind of dense area. I do think, and and as I write in the book, each of the four models, including the neighborhood incarnation models, has strengths and liabilities, I call them. So, I mean, there are challenges to trying to be a neighborhood incarnation church in a context where place is not clearly defined, and that's representative of what you're saying. However, I do think that some of the basic orientations and practices of the uh, model—and this is what I was trying to get to er earlier—are really pretty transferable to any of the models and to any of the places, which is that basic sort of attitude, as I said before, God's at work in our neighborhood. God's at work in our place. Now, how are you going to define the boundaries of place? These are things to work with and, and think about. That focus on place sort of disciplines our attention. I think I tweeted this yesterday. God is everywhere, but in order to know God anywhere, you have to know God somewhere. Um, And having sort of this vague God is everywhere spirituality doesn't help us discern God or join God. So where are we going to know God? Is it in our neighborhood? Is it in our zip code? Is it in our area code? Where are we going to do this work of asking, how's God at work here? How do we join with what God's doing here? So that's an emphasis that's true of, of the neighborhood incarnation church planting model that I think is appropriate basically in any church, in any kind of place.
1: Yeah, we could lose Im- imminence for tra- transcendence, right? That's right. Yeah, that's really helpful. Well, let's, let's try to ground this. I think there's so many great ideas you've thrown out, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm getting a real sense of—I mean, this is a reorientation of how we think about church and God's um, spirit at work in the world— but I, I want to drive this to a very specific situation and just imagine a couple of scenarios here. Um, imagine I'm a church planner in Madison, and we're meeting over coffee, and I ask you for your advice about what I should do as a church planter to foster a thriving congregation that cares about its neighborhood. How would you advise me? What practical
2: steps? What would you tell me to do or or not do? Yeah, well, a couple of things come to mind, and. Um, I'd ha- I have to say, read my book, right? <laughs> read my book with your core team. In fact, I got an email uh, last week from a, a relatively newer church planter in Seattle who was reading my book with their core team, their Acts 29 sort of affiliated. So that it's great to hear when that when that happens. And in part because any church plant could be in any one of these models, and I give specific advice to each, uh, things to avoid, things to, to lean into. But more broadly, one thing that I would suggest is important for a lot of church planters is to think about how you are talking about your place. Uh, Many church planters, especially those in in an evangelical tradition, tend to go to places and make the case for church planting there by painting a pretty dark picture. Uh, You know, this is the most post-Christian city, and a lot of church planters came to Seattle in the early 2000s for this reason. Uh, It was one of these destination... In fact, uh, I write about in my book a member of a church planting team in Seattle who'd come from Alabama, but he and his wife were thinking about where they're going to plant a church. Um, and the church that they were a part of was going to plant three churches in the coming year. They're going to plant one in some undisclosed location where you're going to be persecuted. So we can't tell you where, and that he was excited about it, but his wife was like, yeah, that's a little too much. They were going to plant a church in Kansas city, which they're like, that's too safe. And then they were going to plant a church in Seattle. And they're like, ah, oh, the best of both worlds, like a little bit of persecution. So so, But that represents this sort of attitude of we, th- we see our place as a, a, a spiritually vacuous place, evil place, lost place. But theologically speaking, every place is beautiful and broken. Every place is a place where God's at work. And so church planters, um, churches in general, need to be careful about letting sort of their fundraising techniques of showing the need become their driving narrative of their place. Uh, So talk about the beauty and goodness and work of God in your place, not just the lostness and brokenness and spiritual need in your place. Uh, Really pretty important. And along with that, uh, I mean, it's sort of a practical implication of that is look for ways to join the goodness and beauty in your community rather than just, we will start all our own programs, because we are the only source of goodness. It's sort of the mentality um, in our place. So I, I like to say I think joining or partnering is as important as programming uh for churches, especially if they wanna have if they wanna be as they ought to want to be, a vital part of the life of their neighborhood or their their community. Uh it's not just about what can we put on for them, it's how can we partner with them in the flourishing of this place. So I think that that's a sort of practical piece of it. One last thing. Church plants have, especially coming out of uh, the South more often than not, uh, sort of run on the model, which is a, is a successful model to a degree. Uh, if we can put on a good church service, then that sort of be will be the base of our the other things that we want to do, sort of putting most of the chips in the worship basket. I think it's as important to think about the social life of your church as the worship life of your church. And that might mean things like small groups, but it also means thinking about the rhythms of relationship in which you're discipling people, and also because there are limits to who you can invite successfully to worship that are not the same limits as who you can invite to a social space, to a social gathering. So I I encourage uh, pastors uh, and church planners of all types to think about the monthly rhythms of their church as much as sort of the worship rhythms of their church, um, and making sure that there are rhythms in the life of your church where it would make sense to that you and your church folks are either participating in the rhythms of your community, uh, margarita night, for example, one of the churches told me uh, you know, that some of their folks on their planting team joined the local margarita night with the other people who worked at Trader Joe's. You can join the rhythms of your community, or you can create uh, rhythms that are not sort of church dominated, controlled content, but where interested folks or neighbors could be part of the social mix without deciding I'm going to come to a worship service
1: so good so good and i will put the information in the show notes but really encourage um our listeners to read chris's book it's so helpful on so many of these points yeah a lot of what you're describing is 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 really countercultural to the way that we think about church life and um i mean the advice at some level seems um so intuitive and yet it's so hard for us to to grasp um so i really appreciate your thoughts on that, and um, and and there is a real tendency for us to to describe the brokenness, to punctuate the brokenness, and to kind of forfeit our opportunity to, to talk about God's um, creational goodness in our places, or or His redemptive work in our places. And I think that's that's so important, and it's e- so easy to fall in that trap.
2: You know, it's actually true. What I found in Seattle was some fall off one end, and others fall off the other. And, you know, some some. Uh, churches more in a mainline or progressive stream would punctuate all the goodness and really have, have nothing bad to say, you know, this is one of the reasons the neighborhood incarnation model was stronger as I saw it is the churches that had that kind of sense of place were more likely to have a more balanced way of describing place um, rather than, you know, everything in this progressive uh, utopia is great to everything in this secular place is horrible. Uh, that, those were sort of the evangelical and mainline caricatures but the churches, even in the mainline or evangelical traditions that had a more um, neighborhood identity, had a more balanced way of talking about the beauty and brokenness of their place. I
1: want to take that sort of metaphorical coffee one one a step beyond. And now you're sitting down with a pastor of an existing church, and um, they're interested in congregational renewal. Uh, they're waking up to—maybe uh, they, they're experiencing challenges— um, but they're waking up to a new way of conceptualizing church and the life of the church and the body of Christ.
2: What would you say to that person? I think many of the, the same things hold. That that sense of commitment to place is important. Thinking about the social rhythms is important. I think the biggest difference probably between a church plant and a, a more established church that's seeking renewal is in a church plant there's a sense of dynamism and energy. We're doing something, we're creating something, we're building something. Even if it's... Uh, from my perspective, too much relying on human agency and not enough attentive. Sometimes to we're following God's lead in this. There's a sense of dynamism, whereas in often in, in established congregations that are looking for renewal, there's a sense of sort of lethargy or momentum that that's not moving. I think that you really have to address that as a primary issue before you can just look at other ways to renew. Like that's the heart of the life of the church. Do we know? This is this is like goes to the old questions about what's a missional church. For my money, a missional church is a church that knows themselves as participants with God in the renewal of all things. They know that God is active in the world, and they know that God is inviting them to be particip- participating in that, that, that God's activity in the world has given them life and caused calls them to be part of the life of their community. So how do you actually do this in an existing congregation? Well, you know, one of the ways, uh, you and I, John, are actually both in- invested in this uh, through Awake and Dane, is bringing into the center of the conversation God questions, not just church questions. Uh, renewal c- can mostly, you know, make people think about how do we renew the church? Those are church questions ought to be asked. But the God questions can sometimes be neglected. What's God up to in our neighborhood? How is God calling us beyond ourselves? Uh, and depending on the tradition, talking about God actively actually doing things in your life and in your community, can require some new fluency and vocabulary and, and comfort to actually talk about that. But from, from my perspective, this is core to what it means to be God's people. We are the people who wrestle with God. <laughs> uh, we are the people who try to, in really imperfect ways, participate with what God is doing, be on the same page with God. So if we got to put talking about God's action in the world at the center of our conversations.
1: A lot of what you're talking about um, presumes um, a, a deep um, walk and um, journey of discernment with God. And you've used the word, um, I, think you've, I think, I'm not sure if you've explicitly referred to it, but prayer certainly is a part of that. Um, but you've also, you just used the word wrestling.
0: Yeah. Think of
1: Jacob and, and yeah. sort of the wrestling match. How do
2: congregations discern? I wonder if you could just touch on that briefly. Well, the defaults for congregations include important practices like prayer, like engaging with Scripture. Like, these are essential pieces of discernment. Um, often, congregations will will do also important work of sort of asking, what is the story God is writing with our congregation, has written over the history? These are important questions about uh, that would come up out of an appreci- appreciative inquiry process, like what are the the strengths and the, the usable parts of our history that we want to carry forward. That's all thumbs up to all that. And, <laughs> or, or maybe, but that's not enough. Um, those often will be sort of a dead end of an inward look. And so what we're doing in Awaken Dane, as you know, is adding to that mix two crucial elements. One of which is you need to be having fresh experiences in your community. Uh, I love the stories in in Acts and um other other places, certainly of the importance of a Lydia or a Cornelius for actually the discernment of God's people. These are people who are outside the the Jesus community to start uh, and they play a critical role in the discernment of the Jesus community, knowing where God is leading them in that moment. so uh, without getting into the the whole stories here, but Cornelius is you know that's the most pivotal moment in the New Testament. Uh, discovering that God, God's spirit intends to include the Gentiles. And it doesn't happen without a God-fearing Gentile, not a Jew, right? So, so for a congregation, that means you need to be having fresh experiences in the coffee shop, at the football game, at, the, at your office, and seeing those encounters, those conversations, learning the stories of your, your neighbors as critical inputs for the discernment of the church. So you come, you hear those stories, you have those experiences, you come back and reflect and discern with them around a God question, what might God wanting us to be, to notice about our neighborhood? How might our neighbors be giving us clues about what's going on, what God is doing? And that, of course, does happen within the the broader context of having our imagination shaped by scripture, uh, the tradition, practices of prayer of, of various kinds, I, I particularly Prayer of Examine is one that I have my students, they're doing it, you know, right now, this semester, they they practice a, a specific form of Prayer of Examine, because the Examine is a prayer that makes us ask the question, "How's God been at work? And and it, it repositions us from, we got to fix things that are falling apart, to God's at work, how do we get aligned? Yeah,
1: so so good. I This is probably a good lead-in, um, and I'll circle back on a couple of other things I wanted to ask, but I, I'd like to transition briefly to Awaken Dane. And we'll put detail on our show notes so those who might be interested in joining can read about that and, and discern next steps about possibly joining that that work. Talk about uh, Awaken Dane. Um, it's, it's a Lilly Endowment-supported uh, grant um, that involves several partners. Um, and um, University of Dubuque and Chris have really been kind of our theological anchor and um, in so many ways on this project, but I, I wonder if you would speak to that and um, and how it um, how how the project highlights uh, so many of the things we've been talking yeah. about.
2: Yeah, well, it really did come out of this uh, set of partnerships in a place and a a sense that we wanted to build build in many of the things that, that I have been talking about. So in the grant, we write about four things that really are markers of thriving congregations, since that's the kind of grant that this is meant to focus on. One, they have an active sense that they're experiencing the living God uh, in, in worship and beyond worship, and, and God is at the center of their conversation, as I said before. They know and love their place in its people. They enjoy relationships with one another that extend beyond Sunday and beyond the church building. And finally, they have a clear sense of their unique call and mission, and that's. Awaken Dane is built. Uh, the, the sort of programmatic pieces are built to serve those four features of a thriving congregation.
1: So, Chris, that's really helpful. The the kind of four priorities of Awakened Dane, and um, you've reflected on kind of a, a the deep work that works that happens in congregations where the the church leaders pastors and lay leaders are in deep conversation with each other uh, in their respective congregations, um, thinking about the dynamics of their neighborhoods, and then in a cohort of other pastors that have some geographic proximity. What else happens in the context of Awake in Dane? Are there issues that are um, relevant to our larger—not um, not thinking so much about our zip codes, but maybe our area code—
2: that's a great way of framing it, John. Yeah, so in addition to sort of the pastors groups that are meeting monthly and the congregation groups that are meeting monthly, we have scheduled into Awaken Dane a couple times a year, big, big plenaries that address contextual features that are sort of bigger than just the neighborhood and really mostly bigger than even um, just the city, but but are sort of reflective of major trends or or sort of tricky issues that need to be understood. So... We just did one in January addressing the crisis of belonging that's, uh, you know, inflected with political issues, but also uh, just sort of the the evaporation of community that's a feature of American life. And with the help of Parker Palmer sort of opened up that issue. I know we've got uh, other ones coming up addressing uh, race and the dynamic, uh, very important feature of our context, not just in Madison, but of course, uh, nationally. And we, there's there's a number of these other themes. Maybe you have another on mind. Yeah, I do. I, I think uh, I
1: think in September, August or September, um, the built environment. So there are really unique yeah. things about how Madison is laid out architecturally, yeah. and um, and and then you know down the road we'll be talking about higher education. Certainly, when you're talking about Dane County, you have to think about the University of Wisconsin, yeah. right, the, the, and the system more broadly. So. All of these issues, um, in some ways, they're outside voices, right? Bringing these plenary voices to bear on particular geographies, uh, neighborhoods, um, and some of the churches who might actually be located outside of the core part of the city, uh, you know, miles away from the University of Wisconsin, they need to be thinking about the University of Wisconsin. It's an important outside voice that
2: actually shapes their local work. That's right. And I mean... Like much of the the teaching and research that I do, you want to get as particular as you can about the local setting, and you also need to recognize what are the the big issues, dynamics, institutions, care, people's narratives that are um, shaping our place, uh, the the very particular place, and so. And I think you have a book. You're working on something yeah. that's more on that macro level. Tell us a little yeah, bit about I'm, your. Next I'm working price. on a second book called Reseeding Church uh, Orientation: Grounding and Direction for the Decades Ahead." Another book with Oxford. And the I'm in the first section, really zooming out. I mean, I'm sort of not just looking at Seattle or or any particular geography. I'm looking at uh, the U.S. context more broadly, and unpacking big issues like the decline of religion, you know, the rise of the nuns and sort of the post-Christian dynamics is one big elephant in the room. I'm addressing political polarization, another big elephant in the room. Uh, I'm, I'm addressing sort of the unraveling of many foundations of Western society. So these are sort of maybe more 30,000 foot, but they're contextual issues that are getting played out in every locality uh, and in every sort of moment and context. So, yeah, in that book I'm trying to— zoom out and sort of say, if you want to do the important work of asking how to embody the gospel locally in your particular place, you can't do that very well without being aware of some of these big historical, sociological, religious trends.
1: Yeah, so helpful. You've referred to the nuns several times. I'm, I, I'm assuming most people uh, are familiar. If you're not familiar with that term, uh, don't sweat it. It's it's a term kind of inside language, but it's, it's the, the growing... It's a term for the growing number of people in American society, and it's used more broadly than American society that don't affiliate with any religious um, background.
2: Let me—I was going to share this. Uh, the unaffiliated is another way to describe yeah. it, and one of the big features that's actually changed over the over the last several decades along these lines is in the '70s. If you grew up in a non-religious household odds were better that you would be religious by the time you were an adult, like 60-something percent. You were going to sort of find your way to a religious identity. But if you grew up in a non-religious household in the 2010s, odds are the other way that you're still not religious. And so part of what's happened over the last decades is not just people have become less religious, but the center of gravity has changed so that— and it goes the other way, too. Religious people are much less likely to retain their religious identity now— uh, the religious identity they had in their, their growing up years. Um, so whereas it used to be that people sort of found their way to religious identity because that's where the center of gravity was with them in American life. It's more often that they find their way to a center of gravity around non religious identity, even if they're, they grow up in a religious household. So uh, among evangelicals, I think, uh, I, I think it's 61% as of 2014, uh, that if you wrote, you raised in an evangelical household you're still, among millennials, you're still identifying evangelical. But that's 40, nearly 40%. With mainline Christian traditions, again, this is 2014, it was, it was 37%, I think it was. So there are real differences between the traditions about thinking about how do you actually um, raise your child up in the way he should go, he or she. But that's a major cultural shift that you can't just— assume that most people are going to find their way to religion, as they did in the 60s or 70s. Um, without thoughtfulness around it, most people are going to find their way to non-religious.
1: Education. Yeah, so interesting, so interesting. It leads me to a question that I've been wanting to ask, and that is, you know, there's so many statistics out there that, that circulate about religious landscape, our religious landscape and how it's changing in the, in the United States. What do you pay attention to? Um, are there any leading indicators for religious belief um, and practice that Can help us gain insight.
2: Well, there's some good research always coming out of Pew, uh, always coming out of PRI, which just recently released uh, the 2020 Religion Census. Mm -hmm. So, great reports coming out of there. Statistics are less helpful than trends, so it's always interesting to see you know which way are things moving. Um, But I will say I'm I'm sort of less interested in the particulars uh, than I used to be. There's a way in which we need to be well-informed, but on the other hand, sort of an obsession with statistics and even trends actually takes us away from the, the focus on what God's doing and can be sort of a grasping for control. It can feel like if I know the stats, I can control the outcomes. Um, that's an illusion, and it's it's not a not a very helpful one. So... Yes. Generally, it's important to see, like, okay, how, how's the next generation? Is it the same? There, there's some indication statistically that Gen Z may be more or less flat with nuns, and we may reach a peak at, like, 40%. Um, at some point, we probably will reach a plateau or a new equilibrium. It's it's not destined that every generation will be less religious than the previous generation. Um, but at the same time, we never know. Even a trend doesn't tell you which way it's going to go in, in two years. So... Th- those are great sources, but uh, I try not to, to put too much um, focus either in my teaching or in my own thought around what are the specific numbers, but generally speaking, how are things, how are things shifting? I mean, another important one um, has been, that I've been reading about and I'll be writing about tomorrow, has been basically the politicization of religious identity. Um, uh, political identity has sort of uh, subsumed all the other identities underneath its banner, and that... That's a real problem that we need to think about for Christian faith and witness. That's not one that you can fix because you know the statistics, but you need to recognize that there are, for example, many evangelicals, people who will self-identify as evangelical, who are not church folks. Um, so that's one indicator, but there are many others. Uh, just I've been reading a book recently along these lines. I think the title is um, civil, uh, Uncivil Agreement. Great book. This is just basically demonstrating how, over recent decades, um, all kinds of other social identities have aligned themselves under political identities, and when you get that kind of what they call social sorting, you get all kinds of bad outcomes for society. Uh, but my my point is going to be, you get really bad outcomes for Christian witness. <laughs> so,
1: I, I I've got to ask about COVID because it seems to me that it it, it you know from my perspective, um, and again. Uh, uh, it just it, a single perspective, um, but it is changing, or it has changed at some level, the ecclesial yeah. ecology, or maybe the way that we're thinking about church, um, and that's just sort of my gut impression, but I, I'm i curious what you think. Um, what has COVID—what um, What impact has it had on the life of the church?
2: Well, I'm certainly not the first to, to point out that it's mostly accelerated existing trends. Uh, it's accelerated declining attendance. It's accelerated—and and It's not bounced back, and it probably won't really ever all the way bounce back. Uh, It's accelerated uh, what what I would call consolidation. More people are going to bigger churches. Few people are going to smaller churches. It's accelerated accelerated polarization, not only within congregations, but between congregations. So it's this sorting thing, you know, um, whether masks and vaccines were expected led some people to find themselves to new churches. So that kind of sorting. So it's accelerated a, a number of trends. Oh, another really important one was, do we offer anything online? I mean, yes. a lot of churches, of course, are doing that. While all those trends have, have been accelerating, there are—it is, like many other trends, actually bringing some churches to this point, as you, you suggested, of being open to fresh thinking. Mm-hmm. Too many people, in my opinion, too many churches are pinning their hopes on online churches like the future— Um, I'm less optimistic. I think churches need to be leveraging online and social technologies to connect with people and um, connect with them through the week. So those are important. But as a replacement, I think it's, it's pitiful. There are, more generally, though, there's this sort of new recognition that the way things, we have been doing things, are doing things, just doesn't have much of a future. And so grasping for one thing or another might not be that promising, but... A new posture of we got to try something else is again quite quite hopeful and promising, and it does it does uh, I think portend well. The coming decades are going to be there's going to be a lot of closing churches. There's no no doubt about it, but there's going to be a lot of uh, fresh and exciting experiments as well. So, seeing it as a time of learning of experimentation uh, in the wake of COVID, but also in the mix of all these other trends, is Again, much more faithful than than trying to say, can we fix the strategy now that'll that'll guarantee some sort of growth or future for us?
1: Yeah, that's so helpful. And it's a good perspective, I think, to and an optimistic perspective that there's there's good that can come out of this and that we really can learn and and the church can be strengthened. I want to end on a on a place because uh, I've I've just been really impressed with the University of Dubuque and the niche that it has carved out. It's really a a wonderful setting and um our listeners may not be familiar with it um and i think there's even i think i, I think maybe you tweeted this out there is some new campus design that's actually going to uh accentuate some of the the neighborhoodliness of of the community yeah. there Talk about University of Dubuque um, and the Theological Seminary. What's unique about the educational mission?
2: It is a uh, a Christian liberal arts uh, institution, one that has, I'd say, since the 2000s, actually sort of been rediscovering and uh, re-centering its Christian identity. Uh, Many, most of our students are not coming for religious reasons or from religious backgrounds. Um, But there is a sort of mission of Christian hospitality and formation, care for the whole person, that, that drives University. It's one of the most uh, racially diverse campuses in Iowa.
1: Yeah, I really noticed that. I it yeah. was really diverse student body.
2: Yeah, really diverse student body and beautiful campus. Many many new buildings over the last uh, ten or fifteen years. So it's it's quite a beautiful, wonderful place to work. Uh, we also, I mean, at the undergraduate level, we have a theology degree. And one of the things about the seminary that's pretty exciting to me is is we're recognizing the needs of the church. Uh, go far beyond just credentialing people with Masters of Divinity degrees. And so thinking about our theology degree, thinking about uh, things for people who've already got degrees, uh, Doctor of Ministries and Continuing Education and lay training, all these things are part of what we're we're now seeing as more central to the bigger project of theological education as a school. I will say, I mean, what, what makes UDTS distinct? Uh, it is a PCUSA seminary, and the... Two features that stood out to me when I first came here and was interested in the job was that we focus on the formation of pastors as disciples. Um, this is not sort of a, a buffet of religious learning. Um, we are forming Christian leaders and Christian disciples. And as I said before, um, our students go on to be good pastors. That's our reputation. I mean, we train effective pastors and leaders for the church. Not a whole lot of scholars, which is which is fine. We're, we're training. Folks to serve the church, so that focus on formation is matched with a focus on mission. So there is actually a three core sequence for all, for our Master of Divinity students in mission. The Gospel and Context course that you mentioned uh, is one of those. I teach another course on starting new missional communities. It's part of that focus and and centers much of what we've been talk about talking about today as part of the overall educational ethos. Uh, I also just mentioned I mean, we have been doing online. Uh, theological education for 20 years. So way, we are way ahead of the curve on that. Um, and one of the things, and that's that means we've got students dispersed all over the country, um, and we're very intentional about having their place be part of their education. So they're doing their not only their sort of internships and in churches there, but they're reflecting on their context as well as reflecting on the context that we travel to together here in Madison. Uh, we have a good cohort of students also in Dubuque, And the sort of balance between uh, online dispersed all over the place and uh, in place in Dubuque, and also with this recent work here in Madison, as I think uh, helped to sort of reconsider the broad ecology of theological education and the need for theological education, uh, the benefits of theological education in place, uh, not just theological content available online, um, so even when we're we're doing our online courses, we are thinking about place, but uh, recently got uh, a Lilly grant and are are looking for ways to sort of live that out, play that out here in Madison as well as we do uh, in Dubuque. So
1: I was impressed. I've I enjoyed my day there with you, and um, I've been on a lot of college and university campuses, and there is a there's something special going on at UDTS. So I will put more detail in the show notes and encourage people to check that out as well. Chris, it has been, fantastic to spend time with you. Thank you so much. I am, we are so grateful for your work in Dane County and far beyond, and just look forward to um, journeying with you over the months and years ahead.
2: Likewise, John, it's it's uh, really fun to, to be partnered with you in that grant and uh, to just be a friend and working uh, in the same vineyard, as I like to say.
1: Thanks, Chris. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Music by Micah Baer. Audio engineering by Andy Johnson. And graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.